Well, let's open up to Matthew 24, Matthew 24 this morning. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse one. Uh, we left off last Sunday in Matthew 23, 37 through 39. That'll set us up for this morning where Jesus addressed the nation of Israel for the final time saying to them, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stoned those who sent, uh, who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing. See your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus pronounces seven woes upon the leadership of Israel, as Marcus mentioned. And then at the end of that, he turns and just, it's as if that's all kind of focused in the destruction of the capital. Listen, this the center of worship actually gets decimated. And Jesus is saying to them, listen, this place is going to be absolutely destroyed. You've, and that's kind of what happens. There's a spiritual decay and then there's a physical decay that follows. It's interesting. And so this leads us into chapter 24, where Jesus speaks to his disciples and to us about his return. He says, listen, you're not going to see me again until you see blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the first time there was a rejection, but the second time the nation of Israel is going to be accepting the return of their Messiah. And obviously it's going to be very complicated and we'll get there as we go. But so we pick up in verse one of chapter 24, by the way, chapter 24 and 25 are called the Olivet discourse because Jesus ends up going to the Mount of Olives for most of it in speaking to a few of his disciples about his second coming. And so we pick up in verse one of chapter 24, which reads Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. How many of you have been to Israel? One way to go two, three. Awesome. All right. So you can actually check out for a minute. No, I'm just kidding. But as Jesus was headed out of the temple grounds there on the Mount uh, and headed to the Mount of Olives for the night where he would often stay with his disciples when they were there, Matthew says that the disciples were pointing out the various buildings and the stones and all these types of things. And the other gospels speak to this as well. Um, just to let you know, the parallel accounts of what's going on right here in Matthew 24 is Luke 21 and Mark 13. So they're all kind of talking in, you know, from a different person's angle about what was going on there. Well, Luke's account in, in 21 verse five, it says that they were commenting on the stones of the temple and the various offerings that were given by the people that were on display. Mark in his account in chapter 13 says that they were pointing out the wonderful stones and the wonderful buildings. And so similar type stuff, the disciples were marveling over the architecture, the, the buildings, the grandeur of everything, the stones and the offerings that people gave the deck, uh, the offerings that people gave that decorated the walls and all of this type of stuff as they are now in the middle of a feast there in Jerusalem, where the whole nation is converged on the capital. And I think it's important to note how magnificent the temple was in Jesus's day, because it will give us context to his next statement that not one stone will be left upon another. Speaking of the temple proper there. And so the temple in Jesus's day was actually the second temple. The first temple was built by King Solomon back in nine something BC. Uh, if that helps you out. 
but it was destroyed in 586 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes in and he goes ahead and destroys Jerusalem. There was actually three different sieges, but he finally comes in and destroys it and takes, uh, he kills everybody basically takes, takes a lot of people captive and brings them back to Babylon to modern day Iraq. And remember that Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego, that's all of them. They're young men when they get taken back to Babylon. You can read about that destruction of Israel in, of Jerusalem in, in the temple in second Kings chapter 25 verses eight through 10. Now at the end of that 70 year captivity, God promised that they'd be captive in in, uh, in Babylon, basically for 70 years at the end of that 70 years, the Jews were allowed to go back into the land to rebuild the temple to, well, to rebuild the walls, the foundation, the, temp, the, the temple Mount, and eventually the, um, the temple itself. And you can read about how that came about in Daniel nine. And also the book of Ezra talks all about that kind of stuff. Pretty important how they built the foundation uh, but then it soon experienced opposition so that the building of the temple was delayed 17 years. So they built the foundation and then they got discouraged. There's a lot of people giving them a hard time. I won't get into all that, but you can read about that. But then two prophets, the old Testament, you ever wonder what those, those little prophets are in the middle of everything? Well, some of these guys pop up in the middle of this time, uh, Haggai and, and Zechariah begin to prophesy and encourage them to go ahead and finish what they're supposed to, what they started. And then uh, King uh, Darius or Darius, uh, he, he gave them favor and they actually, they actually finished the temple. It's a pretty amazing feat. And upon constructing the temple, the old men, the old priests who had been children at the time when they saw the original temple, they got pulled out into exile and they came back. And so they are old men now. Sorry, 80s, you're old, right? So they're old, like 80s, 90s, and, and they had seen things. They had remembered things, and they saw the glory of Solomon's temple. When they saw Hezekiah's temple, when they saw how it was rebuilt, they wept. Everybody else is all like, yay, and they're just like, oh, it's just, it's weak. It's small. It's not as glorious and grand as it was before. But here's the cool thing is if you keep reading Ezra, the word of God was actually revered and they, and they started teaching the word of God, actually reading the law to people and the people's hearts wept because they hadn't heard the truth in so long. It's such a beautiful picture. And so while the outside wasn't as pretty, what was truly going on at the heart of it was super beautiful. But we fast forward a few hundred years. So that was around I don't know, four, 400 years before, before Christ fast forward to around 20 years before Christ. And a guy named Herod, the great pops on the scene. How many of you guys have heard of Herod, the great? Well, he calls himself Herod, the great. He was really short. So he calls himself Herod, the great. And he was a master architect and he also liked to slaughter babies. So um, that's kind of, you know, who he was. He tried to kill Jesus. Remember that? So that's not, he's not the greatest guy in the world. We talked about the Herods before, but Herod was a master architect and you can go over Israel today and see everything that he has done. And it was just absolutely amazing. He was a Idumean, so to speak. Uh, well, so to speak, he was, he was of the line of Esau. He wasn't really a Jew proper. Um, he was kind of 
one of the guys on the side. Nevertheless, he began to, around 20 BC, he began to renovate and rebuild the temple and the grounds. And, and it went on for around 47 years. And so he died in 4 BC. And so it was finished around 10 or 15 years after he had passed away, but there was a long giant process of him rebuilding the temple grounds. And just to give you an idea of what he did, the temple Mount on which, uh, on which the temple was built and the outer courts were, uh, in the various buildings, Herod doubled them. This is the current uh, temple mount right now in, in Israel. And if you are looking down this way, that is the Mount of Olives. And so that this is east. And that big square outline is basically the temple mount today. And on top of it is the Aksala Mosque, right? And so you've got the western wall on the other side there. Where did the Jews go to pray? Well, the, the temple would have stood somewhere, probably, they think, right where that mosque is today. And that's why they popped the mosque up there. Right. And so it stands on about 15 acres. And, and if you look on the left right here, that's the original Solomon's temple. And then Herod comes along and this is what he does on the right. See the big, bigger building on the top there and the left, he comes in and he goes in and makes it massive. And so he, uh, he made the temple larger and the outer courts were larger and he just doubled everything. And so some of the stones used for the foundations were over a hundred tons, the largest measuring 44.6 by 11 uh, by 16 feet and weighed approximately 567 to 628 tons. And so here's a picture. If you go down under uh, the Western wall today, if, if you go on this tour, you can go to the Western wall. Then to the left, you can go down and under and they go down very far and they get down to the foundations of the old temple. And you can see like this is a stone. Look how huge that stone is. And it's massive. It's just absolutely. It's one of these ones. And so uh, these stones were were the foundation stones of the, of the temple Mount on which all the buildings were built. And so regarding the temple itself, Herod raised it, he enlarged it and he faced it with white stone. It polished like marble and, uh, and he had plates of gold on it and various ornate works of gold. Fortunately, there was a photographer back in the day. It took a picture. And so, um, this is a representation. If you go to Israel today, they have this model and that's, I think that's, that's probably taken right there in the sun of, of a model there of it had gold plates around it and various uh, ornate works. Uh, Josephus, um, a Jewish uh, historian at the time in the writings of the war, which contains the history of the Jews from basically the uh, taking of Jerusalem from Antiochus Epiphanes all the way to the death of Herod the great and the book of the war in book five, Herod describes the temple in this way. Let me read you a little bit of history. This is now the outward face of the temple uh, in its front uh, wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight and of the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it, to turn their eyes away just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But this temple appeared to be, uh, appeared to strangers when they were coming uh, to it, like in a, in a distance, like a mountain covered with snow. 
For as to those parts of it that were not gilt with gold, uh, they didn't have gold on it. They were exceedingly white on its tops. It had spikes with sharp points to prevent any pollution of it by the birds sitting on it. We need to get those um, of its stones. Some of them were 45 cubits in length, five feet in height and six in breadth breadth. And so it's just a magnificent area. I mean, this is huge, like 15 acres. Our ground here on the property here is about nine acres, somewhere around there. And so it's pretty massive and the architecture is amazing. You can see uh, these, you know, the, the colonnades that are around all there. Um, and just, just, um, it's just a massive, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. And so as the disciples are walking in the midst of this, they're in awe of the architecture of the stones of how brilliant and white. Remember this had just been finished probably 10 years before they're talking They're 10, 15 years before that. So it was pretty spectacular. And they're looking at all of this and just the grandeur of it and the shininess and the beauty and the, the worship that was going on perceivably they're swept away with it. And they said, Jesus, do you see this? Do you see this? And he answers them. Look, verse two, when he answered them, you see all these, don't you? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What a statement. What an absolutely shocking statement that not one stone would be left upon another. And, and what Jesus was speaking about in the near sense was that Jerusalem would be left desolate as he had just told them. It was to be left wiped out. And we know that as Josephus describes in great detail in book five of the wars is that about 40 years later in 70 AD, Titus, the Roman general came in and absolutely decimated the city of Jerusalem. There was a rebellion by the Jews and then eventually they encircled it. They besieged it and it was horrible. The children were being eaten. People were starved to death. They went in and they were slaughtering everybody, man, woman, and child. They took people off and shipped them off to the mines in Egypt. It was absolutely horrible. Horrible. They, they asked uh, Titus made sure that they did not destroy the temple. They go, do not destroy the temple. Whatever you do not destroy the temple. But apparently the fighting was so fierce in there that someone threw One of the soldiers threw a torch in the window and it burned the temple up. Now, uh, I was reading about this and just let me nerd out for a minute. <clears throat> I was reading about this and, and Ray Steadman, I know has said that, um, and I've, and I've mentioned it before as if it was fact, I guess. So, um, that, that the temple burned and the gold melted and it stuck in between and there, and therefore the Romans came in and pulled the stones away. I can't find the source of that. There isn't a, there isn't a source for that. So it's speculation because that did happen in other areas around there, but it didn't talk directly about the temple. So people are speculating that that happened about the temple. And so they were thinking that's how it got pulled down. Well, just to let you know, uh, Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another. If you noticed over there, there on that modern day picture, there is no, there's no temple. There's no temple grounds. There's nothing. The big old flat slate that obviously has been rebuilt over time. Total destruction came to it one way or the other. The temple was destroyed. There was total desolation. And eventually that thing was wiped clean. Actually, Josephus describes it as if nothing was there. So maybe that's where they're pulling, um, pulling that from. But the city was left desolate by the Romans 
and there was total destruction. And today a moss stands in its place. And Jesus words came about one way or into the other. And from there, Jesus and his disciples move out of the city to their favorite spot on the Mount of Olives, just to the east of the city <clears throat> as they go down and up. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse three, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Mark tells us that the disciples who came to Jesus privately weren't the whole group. They were James and John and Peter and Andrew. So the fishermen brothers, they are, they just heard what was going on and what Jesus said that this whole place is going to get destroyed. There's not going to be one stone left on another. And they're just, what is going on here? And they asked this question. They said, tell us when is this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? This is pretty apocalyptic. And they're processing what Jesus told them as they're leaving the city. And they asked those questions. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? When will the temple be destroyed? When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the new kingdom? Now we have to understand the disciples at this point, they did not understand that there is a gap of time between Jesus's first coming and second coming. It's a mystery and, and it's revealed as we know in the new Testament writings, but not according to the old Testament. Clearly you can't see it. Jesus gives us a hint. If you look in Luke four, flip over your Bibles to Luke four, flip them over there. Luke four. Uh, you'll have to tell me what verse it is. I didn't write it down. Maybe I did 18. But there's a gap of time between his first coming and second coming. So the disciples are thinking, Hey, listen, when's the destruction of the temple? And when are, and tell us about the sign of your coming, by the way, we're thinking second coming. They're not thinking second coming. The word coming means coming into when's your kingdom coming about. That's what they're expecting. They're expecting one flow of things. This is how the old Testament prophets laid it out quite often. If you read the old Testament, you get the same flow. You would think Jesus, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to come and he's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to come and he's going to set up his kingdom. And it's like, you see that over and over and over. And we don't understand there's a gap between him establishing his spiritual kingdom, basically. And the physical kingdom comes later. Well, Jesus actually gives us a huge hint. Look at Luke four. I think it's what verse uh, 18 where he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Is that verse 18? Everybody. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. So he's in Nazareth. He opened, he's in his hometown, opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he's sitting in church in his in synagogue. And he starts reading. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops at that point which is in the middle of verse three of Isaiah 61. He stops in the middle of a verse, rolls up the stroll, closes it up and say, this is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I just, I'm, I just fulfilled this. That's what he said. He's proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. But if you keep reading, he says and proclaim the favor, you know, the, uh, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God. See, he cuts off the day of vengeance. He just talks about the Lord's favor. Then it goes directly into the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And it goes on and on. And so we, what we see here is that Jesus says, this is my first coming. This is what I'm going to do with the first coming. It has to do with proclaiming the Lord's favor, a time of mercy, a time of forgiveness, a time of grace, a time of calling sinners to repentance, a a time of God's favor, his provision for us as rebels and all these types of things. This is Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a war horse. That's what he's saying. But his second coming is going to be a proclamation of vengeance. That's what's coming. He's coming back to judge. If you read the book of Jude, with ten thousands of his angels to, to execute judgment on all the ungodly of whom we are all ungodly, but by the grace of God, amen. And so when the disciples are asking about the sign of his coming, they don't know the plan. They're thinking about it coming in this fullness right soon. Then that's what they're thinking. So they're wanting to know when the destruction of the temple is going to be and when he's going to take his throne. And so Jesus is going to take the rest of the chapter to point out that there's going to be a gap for them. And for us, there are things that are going to be happening between that point and his second coming. And he wants them to know that when the world is going crazy, hold on, it's not the end yet. And that's the big picture. That's a big point. He wants them and us to know and to have a mindset of what's going to be going on. So the very first thing that Jesus tells them regarding about the conditions that they're going to be facing between his departure and between his second coming, which is the church age, which is what we're in right now is the very first thing he wants to know is verse four. And Jesus answered them and say, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. The disciples are asking, wait, when's this happening? What's your sign? And Jesus just puts that on pause, puts it over to the side. And what does he say? I want you to know this. See that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. Listen, if you're taking notes, which you should, the number one thing that Jesus wants us to be aware of in the middle, in the midst between his, his first and second coming is there is going to be spiritual deception. That's the number one thing he wants us to be aware of. And it is extremely important that we are aware of that spiritual decep- deception. Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. And the reason he is warning them and us is because he repeats the word many time, many, he says, who will come in my name. And will lead many astray. There are going to be many iterations of false Christs that come, and they are going to lead many people astray. Now, how many of you just go, that's just crazy? <laughs> Anyone else? Like, how many of you are going to be like, someone comes in, they go, hey, I'm Jesus? You're going to be like, yeah, whatever. Right? How could anybody be fooled by this nonsense? I mean, we're all technologically advanced. We 
you know, what could possibly fool us in this day and age to think that there's, you know, that someone isn't that someone's the Christ. That's a really good point. Well, Jesus warns us two more times in this chapter about this and gives us a reason why people would be led astray. What would be the allure to this? Look at verse 11. He says that many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So verse five, many false Christs. What do you have in verse 11? False prophets. Is this ringing any bells yet? Verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise. And how will they make people think that they're the real deal? What does he say? And they will perform great signs and wonders. Great signs and wonders. So as to lead astray, even if, even if possible, the elect, listen, it's going to be so powerful, so alluring and people have been throughout the ages, but why it's going to be so poignant that even Christians are going to go, what goodness, this is, there's some, what's going on here. There's a dimension to these people. There's a power behind these people. There's an evidence behind what they're saying. It's not just words. There's a, what's going on. And the reason that people are going to be led astray is because these imposters will be forming great signs and great wonders. Well, how are they doing that? Well, if you flip over to second Thessalonians, I'm having you do Bible drills, write it down. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses nine through 12. Second Thessalonians chapter two, nine through 12. It speaks of the culmination of all these false Christs and false prophets in the very last days before Jesus's return. Let me read it for you. As you read it for yourself, second Thessalonians chapter two, nine through 12. It says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. The lawless one is the antichrist who we'll be talking about next week. The beast The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power in false signs and wonders and with all wickedness and deception for those who are perishing. Who are the ones who are going to be deceived? Those who are perishing. Why? How do we know they're perishing? Because they refuse to what? What does it say there? They refuse to love the truth. And so be saved. Jesus said, I am the way I am the truth. I am the life. They don't love Jesus. And so they refuse to love the truth and be saved. That's a sad state. Verse 11. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Two forces at work here. 
The enemy is const is very powerful. Satan is very powerful. We always undermine his power. He's not God's co-equal. He's a created being, but he is one of the highest fallen angels. And if you read about the power of angels, it's just absolutely amazing. And so a fallen one of his magnitude of his power has to be kept at bay. God puts training wheels on this guy. And what happens is people's hearts are so bent on rebellion that got part of God's judgment upon a people is he lets them go. And he gives them over to what they want. Notice he restrains evil. God is restraining evil, but because people just don't want to love the Lord, they don't want to turn their lives to him. They just don't want the truth. They just have a hard heart of which we all struggle. And by God's grace, he changes us, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the amazing thing about the Lord working in us. But when people just say to no to Jesus for so long, they said, no, they're bent on evil. God then like Pharaoh, he hardens their hearts. He allows them to experience the enemy in full force. And so the enemy comes in and he starts performing powerful signs and wonders and delusions. God's taking his hands off that and says, here you go. And so there's a dimension and a power to these false Christ. There always has been, and there always will be that is demonically inspired. You wonder why people followed Hitler, so to speak. I'm not saying he was a false Christ, but he was a very charismatic, powerful leader. Why in the world would anybody fall off a cliff and, and get into all that? There's just a, a power cult of personality, whatever they want to call it behind it. Think about our nation today. What's going on in our nation. When we were going off the kids with, you know, with transing kids and all this type of stuff, we're going off the cliff. We know there's something wrong with it. And yet we just do it anyways. And, and there's a flow and there's a pull that's just so powerful. It's like a wave. Why does, why does everybody just keep going this way? There's a demonic element to it. Romans one says he just gives us over to this stuff. It's serious business. The reason that people will be led astray during that, this period is because number one, people refuse to believe the truth and to be saved. They don't love the Lord. Jesus is the truth. They refuse to come to him. They refuse to believe the gospel. They want, they love their sin more than they love God. So they're open to deception and God in an act of judgment for rejecting the truth. He gives them over to what their hearts want. He gives them over to the strong delusion or that they may be condemned who do not believe the truth. But if that's, if you are struggling right now and your heart's like, Oh, I'm just stuck. I hate this stuff. Listen, God's not done with you. <laughs> Come to him, call out to him and let him do a work in your heart. And he's not done. And so God allows Satan to manifest his deception as judgment through these false Christs and these false prophets, because the end is destruction. And so you see the enemy has always been behind false Christs and all and false prophets. It's always been empowered by the enemy. There's a supernatural lure to them. Look today on what so much of what's going on. It's, it's the truth mixed with a lie. There's a subtlety to, to it. There's an allure. You just can't quite see beyond the veil. There's an irresistible charm to it that defies logic. So Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, see that you are not led astray when false Christ come. Well, how do you do that? Believe and love the truth. <laughs> it's as simple as that. 
you believe and love Jesus. And so Jesus right off the bat wants us to know that we'll be facing spiritual deception during this time leading up to his return. This is going to be happening. It has happened and it will continue to happen and it will intensify as you get closer to the Lord and it will culminate in the false prophet and the false Christ, the man of the, the embodiment of all of that in the tribulation, the great tribulation, which we'll talk about next week. And so Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. First thing, false Christ, false prophets do not be led astray. Secondly, Jesus says in verse six, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place that the end is not yet. The second thing that will be taking place before his coming are wars and rumors of wars. And to this, Jesus tells them and to us, do not be alarmed because these must take place. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Two things we need to be keeping in mind as we are living in this, this life before the Lord's return. Be careful about spiritual deception. And it's coming in subtly and powerfully by charismatic and alluring people. Secondly, don't be alarmed when you hear wars and rumors of wars. Why? Because they must take place. But Jesus says, but the end is not yet. He's talking to those disciples who are sitting there. They don't know what's on the horizon. They don't know Jerusalem's about to be wiped out. They're all going to die. He's going to tell them in just a minute that they're going to be martyred. But saying all this must take place. One of the reoccurring events that will be going on between Jesus's first and second coming are wars and rumors of wars. The disciples did not know that Jerusalem was going to be sacked. Jesus said there would be destruction, but he didn't know when it was coming. There were wars in their day, massive wars. And for the believers in that early church, when they saw the capital city of Jerusalem surrounded by the Romans and destroyed, they were thinking this is it's got to be biblical. It's the end, right? Just says, nope. Nope. It's horrific. Yes. Well, how about for us? World War One. Listen, our, our nation changed their theology when the Revolutionary War happened. We're all kind of a Christian nation. We had an idea that God's kingdom was going to be come better and better and better and better. And then all of a sudden it would culminate in the return of Christ, kind of an all millennial view that was going on at the time. And, and when the war happened between the South and the North and Christians were disagreeing on major things and killing one another and all this stuff was going on, they just, what in the world is going on? And they changed their, their tune on so much. They it made them rethink things. They were shook to the core of their beliefs. And here we have world war one, a little bit bigger than our civil war, world war two, a little bit bigger than world war one. We have million, tens of millions of people dying in the last hundred years from the various forces and things that are going on. Absolute devastation that went on. You know, you talk about Ukraine. I mean, there's a history there, you know, where you had six, I don't know how, how many millions of Ukrainians died out of starvation because of the communists through there. 
was it six million or so? I can't remember. Right, I'm make be conflating it with what's going was going on with the Jews in Nazi Germany. But millions of people died in Ukraine through starvation. I mean, horrible stuff. Obviously, Mao's China, the things that have gone on here in the United States, all this stuff. These wars and rumors of wars. These things are, you know, and we might be on the edge of World War Three. Things are really fragile. What does Jesus say when World War Three breaks out? What does he say? Don't be alarmed. Well, we're going to be alarmed, right? But what does he want you to know? This is not the end. This is not the end. The end is not yet. These things must come about. They're going to be happening more and more and more with greater intensity. Jesus said to them, and he says to us, don't be alarmed. They all have to take place. Wars and rumors of wars are going to happen. Verse 17, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom will rise against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Why do Christians teach that your life is just going to be better and better and better? No, the Bible teaches it's going to get harder and harder and harder and harder. And there's going to be more pain, more suffering, more conflict, more persecution. Jesus is describing what must take place in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is given a vision of the world of world history. When he saw the statue of a man made with various metals and he's really perplexed about it. And so Daniel tells him the interpretation of the, the dream. And basically he has a, has a statue of a man. He has a gold head and I think a chest of, uh, you know, chest of silver maybe and stomach of bronze or legs of bronze and iron, you know, anyways, just various metals going all the way down. I should know. I should know this. Go down to 10 toes that were mixed with, uh, Clay and iron, right? Yeah. Dyslexia. I taught through Daniel a couple years ago. So it's a very metallic beast. And, but all those were pictures of the various superpowers throughout the years that would be taking over one another. These wars that would be happening. You have a head of gold, which was the Babylonian empire, which was taken over by the Medo Persian empire. By all the way, this is being described before it happens. And then it says the Medo-Persian empire was taken over by Alexander the Great. And it does it in two different visions, by the way. And, and so the Greek empire comes in and then you've got Rome coming in and ruling. And then at the end, it shows there's, there's 10 toes and that's like the reemergence of the old uh, kingdom. And it would be ruled. We'll get to there later. But the idea is that world history is, is one nation destroying another after another conquering one another. And it keeps going and it keeps going and keeps going until a stone made, not made with human hands, not hu- uh, made by human hands. The vision is it comes and it hits the foot of that whole thing and it crumbles to dust and a mountain comes and a kingdom is established with no end. The rock is Jesus Christ and the kingdom is his. This is the perpetual state. He says, these things must come. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Nations, meaning multitude, multitudes of people rising against multitudes of people. And we see that happening as there's more and more tension between even people groups and all this type of stuff. It's going to happen. 
and kingdom. Those who are actually have leaders and rulers and people, they're going to be warring against one another. Ukraine's going to be going against Russia. And then you've got the European unions and all this stuff. There's just going to be going on. This stuff is, is, is the way of things. Daniel tells us that this will be the flow of history. They're going to be these things happening. And he says there will be famines and earthquakes. Uh, Luke adds in that there's going to be famines and pestilence. And so diseases of kinds. And so what does war bring? Oh, an abundance of food, no disturbance in the supply chain. What happens to the price of wheat? When Russia is attacking Ukraine, it's all over the place. Apparently, right? What happens when there's pestilence that happens? Everybody wants to buy toilet paper. And so if you go to revelation and you start going to the four, apocalypse of the four, the four horsemen and you see it stacked upon stack, there is a progression of these things that just keeps duplicating itself, duplicating itself in greater intensity. As you go, there is death and destruction brought about by wars and pestilence. And my guess is biological, you know, things that we've created in labs and all this stuff. It's going to be horrific losing a quarter of the earth's population, then a third, then a half during those times. So, there's going to be famine. There's going to be no food. There's going to be earthquakes in various places. I grew up in California. I've experienced earthquakes. Anybody else experienced earthquakes? Yeah, they're not, they're not the funnest thing. They're very disconcerting because it's not under man's control. There are going to be things out of our control. Not as if wars were, but there are going to be supernatural events happening you know, natural disasters, so to speak. There's going to be earthquakes in various places. There were earthquakes in their days that, that destroyed cities. And I'm sure they were just looked around in total devastation as people, thousands of people died around them. Pompeii happens, all these types of stuff. And they're looking around going, this has got to be the end. Listen, it's going to continue and continue and continue until the day there is not only a, the false Christ, the, the antichrist, not only is there the war, there's going to be, the pestilence, there's going to be the earthquake that levels every single city on earth and no islands are left and all that kind of stuff. It is going to be absolutely cataclysmic. And this is why Jesus is saying these things are going to be happening. They're going to be coming about. So do not be alarmed. False Christ, false prophets, wars, rumors of warps, famine, pestilence, earthquakes, what is Jesus? What is the mindset that he wants you to have during your life right now? Don't be fooled. Don't be alarmed. And what are we when things happen? We had a dry run here a couple years ago. If you don't remember, where did our theology go? Where did our trust go? Where did our, where were our hearts in all of this? If you think, you know, we, if you think that was difficult, we haven't seen anything. It's not going to get easier. It's not going to get better. 
And this is why I struggled with the whole thing. And, and by the way, I, you know, I haven't been perfect with it, you know, but when I look at the scriptures and I see that you cannot buy or sell or do things unless you do, unless you comply with X, Y, Z, I see the system in place for when the guy in the end is going to come in and, and, and enforce that on everybody. And we all just lined up like sheep to slaughter. I'm not saying we need to pick up guns and, and have a revolt, but I tell you what though, it's like, we need to be biblically minded about these things, biblically minded about what's coming on. Here's the kicker. And this is what I've been trying to say all time, all, all the whole time. Verse eight. And all these, as Jesus just described, all these, oh, no big deal, all these, no big deal, all these things that are going to be happening are but the, what? Beginning of birth pains, the beginning of sorrows as yours. Sorrows is a bad translation. It is actually birth pains. They put sorrows in there. It's birth pains, beginning of birth pains. These are all the beginning of birth pains. Ladies, I can't speak to this. I've only been a second onlooker to that situation, but no, thank you. It starts with a, all of a sudden out of nowhere. Oh, and then pretty soon after that, another, Oh, and it gets worse and worse and more intense. And the, the, it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And listen, the fact that Jesus likens these events to the beginning of birth pains means that he's liking it to labor. And these things will intensify in severity and frequency as we get closer to his second return. It's not going to get easier. Something is being born. And we'll see next week that the labor really kicks in. And I think that all Jesus is saying, listen, this is going to be the way of the world. But I want you to know when the tribulation comes, that's when all of this stuff is going to happen in rapid succession, suddenly upon the world. And it's going to happen with great intensity. The wars are going to be like you've never seen. And they're going to start out by killing a you know, a quarter of the world's population, then a third, and then all within a period of seven years. And it's just going to be massive upon the earth. Massive cataclysmic things are going to be happening. And so in revelation, we see unfold all these things in greater intensity, the false Christ, who is the reality of all the false prototype Christ that have come before and the false prophets, they're going to be there. The false, uh, the wars and the pestilence and the famine and the death and the earthquakes and everything. Don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. All these must happen, but the end is not yet. So that's how Jesus begins. And then he makes it even better because he flips back to them in verse nine and says, you're all going to die. And everybody's going to start betraying one another. This is what you have to look forward to.
not the message we want to hear, right? Time is short. His day is coming. This world is starting to gasp and do its thing. You know what? When he comes, it'll be like lightning flashing in the sky. The world will cry and we will rejoice. It'll be awesome. So the heart of the Lord and the heart of every one of us, while on the one hand we cry, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. On the other hand, we look out into the world and we see a total rebellion. And the more that we walk with the Lord, we can come sometimes get hard hearted towards the world. And, and we should not even entertain sin in our lives, although we do. But Jesus came to save people. And if we're his, we should have that heart. We know we deserve that. And then the judgment and then hell. And if Jesus Christ paid the price because he loved us so much undeserved and he changes us from the inside out over time. And oh man, what should our message be? What should our light be? What should our love be? to the people around us. Yeah. Speak the truth, but in love and preach the gospel that they might love Jesus. They might love the truth. Be bold, be of the truth. Set your heart right now, this day, who are you going to serve? If you're wishy-washy, get out, go be a part of the world. If you don't want to follow Jesus, then he doesn't want you to follow him. He's done. Remember at Revelation comes to the church and they go, Hey, I've got one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. He goes, I would rather you be hot or cold. It's, he wants you all the way in. He wants us all the way in. He wants us to be a church that loves the truth, that loves him. And as we love him, he changes us. He changes us. Amen. So it's a time for us to take stock and be serious because this is what's coming. And by the way, keep reading the rest of the chapters gets, gets intense. We're going to get into some serious stuff next week. So with that said, let's pray. Lord, the beginning of the end there. I love how your disciples wanted to know when and how, but you told them the heart that they're to have in the midst of it. Lord, may we have your heart. May we love the truth and not be deceived. And when the world shakes around us and things happen, may we not be alarmed. Thank you for your love for us, Lord. Make us bold in this time. Make us full of grace and truth and love. And anyone here who, who's been teetering on the fence, Come to Jesus. Don't run away. Come to him now. Decide to be all in. Confess your sin. Let his grace fill your heart. Let him change you. Do what you can't do. He died for you. And he rose again to give you his life. And he just requires you to believe. So it's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you. 
Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Amen. Go get them. As I said, uh, out those doors is your mission field. Keep going. <laughs>